0: We've been making our way through the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and recently our focus has been on the life journey and the journey of faith of a man named Jacob. 20 years ago, he conspired with his mother to deceive his father into giving him the special blessing that was meant to go to his brother Esau, resulting in Esau planning on murdering Jacob. So Jacob had to flee for his life to an area known as Haran, but now, After 20 years, the Lord has told Jacob to return home and he has made the journey home. Jacob has sent servants ahead to find out if his brother Esau is going to be welcoming or hostile. And they've returned with the message that Esau is on his way to speak with Jacob personally and he's bringing 400 men with him. So preparing for the worst, Jacob has sent wave after wave of gifts of livestock ahead of himself in an attempt to placate his brother Esau, and he's in the process of dividing his family entourage into two parties and putting some distance between them, reasoning that if Esau begins slaughtering the one, the other will have time and opportunity to escape. It's a, it's a tense, tense time, and it's where our story picks up this evening in chapter 33, of Genesis we'll begin in verse 1 and we read now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked and there Esau was coming And with him were 400 men So he divided the children among Leah Rachel and the two maidservants And he put the maidservants and their children in front Leah and her children behind and Rachel and Joseph last. Had to be kind of an awkward moment as he basically arranges the family in order of who he loves most and who he cares about the least. And everybody would have known exactly what he was doing. So I think there would have been some awkwardness in the days to come after this. Verse three, then he crossed over before them and, and then underlined bowed himself to the ground seven times. Bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So, so the idea here is that Jacob and Esau can see each other. They're at a distance. They're likely uh, in a valley or on a plain of some sort or something like that where they can see each other in the distance well. And and Jacob will walk a little bit, then he'll bow down and go down to the ground and bow down so that his brother Esau can see that. Then he'll walk a little bit further and he'll do it again. And he's done that seven times. He's doing everything he can to show honor and humility toward his brother uh, as he hopes for mercy and forgiveness from him. Verse four. But Esau ran to meet him and, and then underline embraced him, embraced him, and fell on his neck. This means wrapped his arms around him and kissed him and they wept. Underline they wept. This was not what our guy Jacob was expecting. And all the emotions come flowing out. Twenty years of this hanging over his head. Twenty years of, of guilt and, and shame and he suddenly finds he's, he's been forgiven by his brother and there's reconciliation, there's reconciliation. I've shared on this before but but we need to hear it over and over again, I need to hear it over and over again. Because sooner or later we all find ourselves in situations and we will over and over again in life where reconciliation is needed. There's a broken relationship, a a fractured relationship, a damaged relationship and we wonder How do we fix this? How do we reconcile? There is, I believe, a a simple equation. It's not easy. Always remember, simple doesn't mean easy. It just means simple, not complicated. And it's this. On the one side of the equation, you need to have repentance from the offender. You need to have repentance from the one who has done wrong. That means they need to to own what they did, they need to take ownership of it, they need to take responsibility for what they did, and they need to express verbally to the other person their regret over having done it, and they need to find out if there's anything they can do to help repair the relationship. And I mean that, when I say verbally make things right, I really mean that, because when we're the offender, when we're the one who's done something wrong, It's so easy for us to just say, well, well, you know, let's just move on, let's just move on. We don't need to talk about it, let's just leave the past in the past and and move on and start fresh. You know, it's a really nice idea. But the problem is that when something is deep enough to cause a fracture in a relationship, there needs to be reconciliation. There needs to be reconciliation if there's gonna be things like rebuilt trust, and so if you're the offender, you gotta make sure that you don't just say, well, well, you know, I think they know. I think they know that I regret that things unfolded that way. It's not good enough. We've gotta actually take the step of verbally communicating our regret to them so that they know that, and then finding out if there's anything we can do to help repair the relationship. Because what we really mean when we say, well, let's just move on, is we mean, you know, I don't wanna deal with the ego-crushing task of having to express my regret to you and essentially having to ask for forgiveness. I I don't want to do that to myself. And so on one side of the equation, you need to have true repentance from the offender. On the other side of the equation, you need to have forgiveness from the one who was offended or wronged. They have to forgive the other person. They have to consider the debt paid. They have to release the other person from the prison of guilt and shame. And and that includes things like not bringing this up again as ammunition when it's handy in an argument somewhere down the road. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't consequences. And I wanna be clear about this. If a person's been untrustworthy, forgiveness doesn't mean pretending that they're now trustworthy. It doesn't mean that. It means that you forgive them of the debt of what they did, but it may mean that going forward you're now educated and there needs to be some parameters and protocols in place so that trust can be rebuilt. If you can have repentance on one side though and forgiveness on the other, then you have an equation whose sum is reconciliation. So write this down. Where the offender repents and the offended forgives, reconciliation is possible where the offender repents and the offended forgives, reconciliation is possible. But if you only have one side of that equation, you cannot have reconciliation. Not not truly, you can't. And if that's the case, you and I still have an obligation to take care of our side of the equation. Our part of that equation is not dependent on what they do. We don't only forgive if they repent. And we don't only repent if they're willing to forgive. That's not how it works. We don't just meet in the middle if they do their part and, you know, slowly inch towards each other. We, We do our part because the Lord has called us to forgive and the Lord has called us to repent when we need to do that. That's why we do it, whether they do their part or not. And in this instance, you had Jacob repenting. And showing his repentance with his humble posture, bowing down before his brother, even trying to send gifts, even though that may be misguided. He was doing everything that he could think of to convey repentance to his brother. And you had Esau forgiving Jacob, putting his arms around him, and the result was reconciliation. They, they wept because there was real reconciliation. The truth, though, is that all of Jacob's gifts and attempts to, to earn his brother's mercy were completely Unnecessary. Because just as the Lord worked in Laban's life to protect Jacob from Laban, you remember that the Lord came to Laban in a dream and said, don't touch Jacob, don't mess with him. Just as the Lord worked in Laban's life to keep Laban from harming Jacob, the Lord had been working in Esau's life to keep Esau from harming Jacob. In fact, the Lord had been at work in Esau's life for for years because he had made Esau wealthy in his own right as we will see and and guess what happened is Esau became wealthier and wealthier this loss of the birthright losing out on his double portion of the inheritance became less of a big deal you know you're sort of not as mad as at the business partner who jilted you out of a million dollars when your company becomes worth 500 million dollars that's the idea and so Esau had become very wealthy in his own right and didn't really care about the birthright thing and it Made him able to fully forgive Jacob. And there's a lesson in all of that. The lesson is that if the Lord calls you to take a step of faith like he did Jacob, then he's already gone on ahead of you. He's already prepared the way before you. So write this down. The Lord goes before us and prepares the paths he calls us to walk. He prepares the paths he calls us to walk. Word of God says he goes before us, behind us, he hems us in on every side. And we forget that part, that he goes before us. He prepares the way before us. He's not leading us to a place where we're gonna find that there's no provision, no preparation, nothing. He's made a plan, and when we get there, when we're in the will of God, we'll recognize, hey, the Lord's been working in advance of calling me to this place. That was the case with Jacob. Verse five, And he lifted his eyes, this is Esau, and saw the woman and children and said, who are these with you? So he, Jacob, said, the children whom, underline God has graciously given your servant. God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. I wonder if Jacob was like, and here are my second favorites and my third favorites. And, And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, because they were the furthest away, and they bowed down. Then Esau said, what do you mean by all this company which I meant? So Esau's saying, what's with all the the waves of livestock that kept showing up before you? And he said, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, underline, I have enough. I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please, if, if I've now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God and you were pleased with me. So Jacob expected Esau to be furious, but instead he found a brother who loved him and had forgiven him. And basically, the idea is as Jacob looks at the face of Esau, Jacob sees in Esau's reaction and expression the face of God. He sees the kindness of God, he sees the love of God being displayed to him through his brother Esau. Verse 11, please take my blessing that is brought to you because, and then underline, God has dealt graciously with me, God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. You gotta understand that the tribal customs of the time meant that if Esau accepted Jacob's gifts, the customs meant that that would be tantamount to Esau saying everything is cool between us. Everything is cool forgiven any type of grudges are done with so Esau is sincere in what he says he, he loves Jacob he's forgiven him and he doesn't need his stuff but Jacob perhaps understandably would like to make that just a little bit more official and so he says you gotta take him you gotta take him you gotta accept these gifts because he's saying like because then if you do I can be like well you took the gift you can't kill me now can't do it verse 12. So he urged him and he took it. Esau finally accepts. He says, sure thing, if it'll make you feel better, no problem. Then Esau said, let us take our journey. Let us go and I will go before you. So he says, let's travel together. But Jacob said to him, oh, my Lord knows that the, the children are weak and the flocks and the herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in seer. So it's debatable whether Jacob is really telling the truth or not here. He's glad that Esau has forgiven him, but again, I suspect he's not Fully convinced, and part of him wonders if he's being led into a trap and is going to be slaughtered later, is my suspicion. So he does everything he can to separate from Esau as soon as he can, and he gives Esau these reasons why they can't travel with him where they're going. He says, Oh, the kids are tired, the animals need to feed their young. You go on ahead without us, we'll catch up with you in Seir. Verse 15, and Esau said, Now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me, let me leave some of my guys with you. But he said, oh, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. Again, Esau's being sincere. He wants to take care of Jacob, but part of Jacob is is likely thinking, oh, you want to leave some guys with me? Like a hit squad? No, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Thank you, though. And you probably noticed that Esau shows tremendous character in our story. Tremendous character. He's, He's gracious toward Jacob, he forgives Jacob. He looks to take care of Jacob. He cares about his welfare. He welcomes him home. So, so does that mean that Esau became a believer? Does that mean that Esau turned to the Lord? No. No. In Hebrews twelve 16, we're told that Esau was a profane man. We've mentioned this before. That's in the New Testament. Profane means ungodly or wicked. In other words, not saved, not a believer, ever. So So how can this be? He's he's such a nice guy, he's doing such nice things. How can he not be saved? Well the answer is one that hopefully we all understand, which is that being a nice person, being a good person, is not what saves you. It's not what saves you. Faith in Jesus is what saves you. And you cannot come to faith in Jesus without giving control of your life over to Jesus. And apparently that's something that Esau was never willing to do. He was never willing to give control of his life over to the Lord. The truth is that we all know you can't be a good enough person to save yourself. Whenever we think that, it's only because we've managed to look around and find some people who we think are worse than us. And so we're like, whatever the standard is, I must be meeting it because I'm better than him and him and him and her and her and her. But the problem is that our friends and coworkers aren't gonna be the ones to judge us after we die. Our family's not gonna be the one to judge us after we die. Jesus is. He's the only one who's going to judge us and he's not gonna say, okay, I think you're a pretty good guy, but can you just point out to me 10 people who are worse than you and then you can get in? That's not what's going to happen. Jesus is going to judge us the same way that we judge people in our society for criminal offenses. We look at one another and we figure out, okay, what sort of standards are reasonable for us to live up to? And then we make laws based on those things. I always say, this is why we don't have laws against lying for most things because we're like, well, then we'd all be in prison. But we get together and we say, you know what, I think it's reasonable to expect each other to not participate in premeditated murder. I think that's a reasonable expectation. And so we come up with punishments based on our own level of morality, the level we believe we can live up to. And God does the same thing. God says, I've got my standard of morality and it's based on what I can live up to. What's the problem? That God is perfect. He's perfect. And so he's able to call us to that standard because he actually lives at that standard of perfection. The problem is obviously none of us can. None of us have. None of us do. But he's just as qualified to judge us based on his standard as we are qualified to judge the other people in our society based on the standards of our society. And that is the problem. That's the problem. It's not about being a good person. It's about meeting the standards of God. And the only way that we can do that is by giving our lives to God and in exchange receiving from him the goodness of Jesus. That's the incredible thing that happens of salvation. Instead of our record being everything that we actually did, when our file gets pulled in heaven, they pull Jesus' file. And it's perfect and it's spotless. That's what happens when you put your faith in Jesus. And that's something that Esau never did. He never trusted God to save him. And so I hope you know that that while Christians should be the best, kindest, nicest, friendliest, warmest people in the world, we're not actually always those things. I don't know if you figured this out yet. We're not all of those things. And if you're a Christian because you're under the impression that Christians are somehow better people than everyone else, you're gonna be really, really disappointed, really, really disappointed really soon. You shouldn't be a Christian because you think Christians are better people. You should be a Christian because Christianity is true. It's the only thing that's true. It's the truth of eternity and the universe and the meaning of life. That's why you should be a Christian, because it's true. Not because it produces nice people and good boys and girls. We're not Christians because we think we're better than anyone. We're Christians because we've realized we're sinners. We're messed up. We're broken. We don't meet God's standard. We can't meet God's standard. What makes us unique as Christians is that we actually said to God, we need you to save us. That's what makes a Christian unique. A Christian said, I need saving I am not enough on my own. I'm not good enough. I'm not adequate. I am broken. Being a good person doesn't save you. Only Jesus can do that. And Esau was one of those guys that we would call a good guy. That's a good guy. That's a good dude. He had become that person, but he wasn't saved. He didn't want the Lord ruling his life. Didn't want it. When Jacob introduces his kids to Esau, he calls them, I had you underline it, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. And then moments later, he says to Esau, please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me. And you see there, Jacob, he's acknowledging the kindness of God. He's giving God glory. He's recognizing that God is the one who's been good to him. However, Esau doesn't praise God. He doesn't give any credit to God. He just tells Jacob, I have enough, my brother. I have enough. There's nothing in Esau that wants to give God the time of day. I love what Jesus said about this issue in John 6. Put it on your outlines. It says, then they, this is the crowd of people, said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? So in other words, they're saying to Jesus, what do we need to do to be saved? What do we need to do to get the approval of God, to be good enough for God? Tell us the list of stuff we have to do. Jesus answered, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work, one work, singular, of God. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent, speaking of himself. He said there's one work that you need to do. Believe in me, that's it, believe in me. Faith in Jesus is what saves you. Verse 16, so Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. He says, I'll see you in a while. Jacob heads off to Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Seir? No, to Sukkoth. You see, Esau heads back to Seir, which is east of the Jordan River and to the south. Jacob told Esau that catch up with them real soon, but then Jacob heads west towards Sukkoth. And we read that he built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. Sukkoth means booths. Jacob heads to Sukkoth, which is on the the heathen side, the pagan side of the Jordan River. And Jacob's gonna end up staying in this area for around 20 years. But it's not a good thing because this is not where the Lord had told Jacob to go. The Lord had told him to go back to his homeland where his family was from, which was Beersheba. Jacob does what? We do many times he he sets out to obey the Lord, good intentions get started on the journey, but then he gets scared, he gets scared, something comes up. Hey, I met Esau, and yeah, everything seems good, but he's got like four hundred men, four hundred men, so it wouldn't be bad just to be really safe if I just kept some distance from him, and I'm sure the Lord'll understand, and he gets scared, and so he comes up with his own plan B, and he ends up outside of the Lord's will. He ends up outside of the Lord's will. So write this down. Jacob let fear cause him to take a detour outside the will of the Lord. He took a detour outside the will of the Lord. So easy to do. Start out with good intentions. Something comes up. You get scared. You lose faith. You panic. You get anxious and You head somewhere other than where the Lord told you to go. Verse 18, then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city. And he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. So Jacob now moves eventually inside the promised land, but he's still not in the area where the other family members would be, the other believers are living. He's still not where the Lord had told him to go. But Jacob's telling himself, hey, at least now I'm in the land, I'm in the general area where the Lord wanted me to be, and I'm still safe from Esau. But in my house, we have a saying. And it goes like this. Maybe some of you parents have the same one. Partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is Disobedience. In other words, if I tell my kid to finish cleaning his room and they get it 80% done, did they obey me? No, because I said to finish cleaning your room. Partial obedience is disobedience. I know some of your parents are like, I just take the 80%, Jeff, seriously, that's really good, especially from a kid. Still disobedience. And that's what Jacob is doing here. He's partially obeying partially obeying and he's going to make the situation worse because instead of just passing through instead of just pitching a tent now once again he he buys property he settles down in this place and the results of Jacob's decision making will be tragic they will be tragic and we're going to read about them because he's going to be surrounded by unbelievers and in this part of the land of Canaan everybody was into worshiping this pagan god known as Baal and the religion around Baal was, was very, very sexual. It's satanic, it's demonic, it's inspired by Satan, but the way Satan gets people to participate in it is he just makes it incredibly sexually immoral. In fact, one of the ways you'd worship if you were a woman, um, they wouldn't do anything like tithing. You say, I'm interested, tell me more. Well, hang with me. They wouldn't do something like tithing. Instead... If you were a woman, what you would do is you'd book some time off, and and for about a a week, maybe four to seven days of the year, you would go work out of the Temple of Baal as a temple prostitute. And the way that you would worship Baal is people would go to the Temple of Baal, pay their money, hire a temple prostitute, do what they do with prostitutes, and then the woman, as her act of worship, would give all that money to the Temple of Baal. And I just want to say... There are some of you who think it's awkward that we pass an offering basket in this church. And so I'm just going to encourage you to have a little bit of perspective based on that little bit of history right there. Anyway, so my point is that this place was not a good culture to raise kids in. Not a good place. Even the word itself, uh, Shechem, it, it refers to the place between the neck and the shoulder on both sides where you would carry a load. If you were carrying a yoke or something across your shoulders, that part of your neck would be called the shechem. It literally means the place of burden. And when you choose to live outside of God's will for your life, when God says, go here, but you say, nah. When God says, make this change, you go, nah, no, I'm good. When, when you choose to live outside the will of God for your life, Even when you think you're making a wise decision like Jacob did, the truth is that you're really choosing to live and dwell in the place of burdens instead of the place of blessings. You're choosing to live in the place of burdens instead of the place of blessings. When you are where the Lord wants you to be, you're gonna be blessed. One way or another, you're going to be blessed. When you're outside the will of God, you're gonna find yourself laden with burdens. Because when you obey the Lord and go where he leads you, one way or another, you're going to be blessed. So what did Jesus say? Jesus said, all you who are weak and heavy laden, come to me. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The idea is Jesus knows, hey, if you're away from me, if you're not where I am, where I'm calling you to be, you're not walking with me, then here's what I know. I know you're heavy laden, I know you're tired. So come to the place of rest, the place of blessing. So write this down if you haven't already. When we live outside of God's will, we're choosing the place of burdens over the place of blessings. We're making that choice. Verse 20, then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. Because when you're disobeying the Lord, when you know deep down that you're not doing what is right, you tend to look for a way to alleviate the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life. You know the feeling, don't pretend you don't. You're not doing what the Lord wants you to do and you've got that conviction of the Holy Spirit, but you're not ready to actually listen to the Holy Spirit and you're like, what, what can I do to just make myself feel like a, like a good Christian just for a little bit and get, get rid of some of this conviction? And so some people say, oh, you know, Maybe I'll feel better if I give some money to the Lord. Maybe 20 bucks will do it. Uh, maybe I'll feel better if I, if I go to church a few times. Maybe I'll tell the pastor the message was good. Then that'll make me feel better and he won't be able to tell that I'm in sin. Or, or, or maybe I'll feel better if I go to confession. I mean, I'm gonna keep doing what I'm doing, but maybe if I hear a priest tell me that a couple of Hail Marys will make it better, then, then maybe the guilt might lessen a little bit. So Jacob does his thing and he, uh, he builds an altar. He builds an altar. Not because anything has happened, just because he's not where the Lord wants him to be and he's feeling kind of bad about it so he just calls it, I'll call this altar God, the God of Israel. I'll, I'll do that. Now let me ask you, do you think that what the Lord really wanted from Jacob at this time is for Jacob to build an altar? does you think that's what the Lord really wanted? No. What did the Lord want from Jacob? Obedience. He wanted obedience. What did the prophet Samuel tell King Saul when a similar situation unfolded? I put it on your outline. Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? So in other words, is God as equally pleased with burnt offerings and sacrifices as he is with just you obeying him? And then he has this great, great line. Teach this to your kids. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. Jacob's there building an altar. I'll call it God, the God of Israel. God says, I don't want an altar. I don't want a worship service from you. I just want you to obey me. Do the last thing that I told you to do, Jacob. That's the worship I'm looking for right now. I'm not looking for another substitute for obedience. Jacob spends 10 years living outside the will of God, then he makes a sacrifice to God, and God says nothing. He says nothing. Why? Well, just as we said, because God was still waiting for Jacob to obey the last command he had given him. That's why God doesn't say anything. He's got nothing new to say to Jacob. Lord, speak. Give me a word. The Lord's thinking, I gave you a word 10 years ago. How about you do it? Then we'll have something new to talk about. Many times we do the same thing. We disobey the Lord. Some time passes. We feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We start seeking the Lord a little bit. And then we start wondering why we're not hearing from the Lord. And often the reason is just because we haven't done the last thing he told us to do. Maybe there's a situation that needs reconciliation and we haven't gone and tried to do that. We're the offender and we haven't gone and repented. We haven't sought forgiveness. Maybe we're the one who's offended and we haven't gone and shared that with our brother like the Gospel of Matthew says that we're to do. We've just held on to bitterness and we know that God's told us to do that, but we haven't done it. And so we say, speak to, it. speak to me, Lord, speak to me, Lord. And we hear nothing. And a lot of the time, it's just because we haven't done the last thing God called us to do. So if you're in that situation, it's a wise thing to just say, hey, Lord, if there's anything you've asked me to do that I haven't done, would you just jog my memory? He'll do it. He'll bring it to your remembrance and to mine. You see, we think God's gonna get tired of waiting us to obey him and that he's just gonna drop it. God doesn't get tired, and he's not going to drop it. (laughs) Because when the Lord sees you or I living in the place of burdens, instead of the place of blessings, he's a loving father, and he loves us too much to let us stay there. He loves us way too much to let us stay there. So write this down. God had nothing to say to Jacob because he was still waiting for Jacob to obey the last instruction he had given him. He was still waiting for Jacob to obey the last instruction he had given him. We're going to move right on into chapter 34 of Genesis, a chapter you will find in no children's Bible anywhere ever. Verse 1. Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. She's not supposed to do this, but she gets curious. She's living in this land surrounded by people who have this entirely other kind of culture and she wants to go down to the mall and see what all the girls are talking about. And so she does this. Verse two, and when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. So if you're not connecting the dots here, this guy Shechem rapes Dina. And the sad thing is that this was pretty normal in this part of Canaan at this time who's just part of the sexual culture around ball worship. You saw something you wanted sexually, you you took it. But in Jewish culture, if this happened to a woman, it would be almost impossible for her to have any type of valid marriage in the future because in addition to the, the horror of the rape itself, it was a literal death sentence over her relational life for the rest of her life. No man would want to marry her in the Jewish culture at the time. And so it's not hard to imagine that When Jacob hears this this horrible news, he would have thought, Lord, how how could you let this happen? But the truth is that Jacob had allowed his family to live outside the will of God. He had led them outside the will of God. He had built a home for them outside the will of God. They were not where God had called them to be. Jacob ignored God's word, he ignored God's commands. And I'm, please understand me, I'm not saying God sent this or did this or caused this to happen. I'm, I'm just saying that when it did happen, after ignoring God's word and God's commands, Jacob doesn't really have the right to complain about this to the Lord. He doesn't have the right. Have you ever known anyone who reacted in a similar way? I have, all of us, all of us. There's times we just ignore God's word We don't do things his way. We know what his word says and we think, but that's not for me. I don't need to do that one. I I do things a different way. I communicate a different way. I have a different style of living. I have a different ethos. And then when things go wrong, we cry out to the heavens, how could this happen, Lord? Where are you? But the truth is, if we've ignored God's commands, we have no right to complain when we find ourselves in the place of, burdens instead of the place of blessings we made that choice and God is gracious and God will bring comfort and God will bring healing he's merciful but we need to be very careful that we don't associate our own bad decisions and our willful ignorance of the word of God we need to be careful that we don't just dismiss that and blame God when we've chosen to ignore what he says. That's what was happening in Jacob's family. Verse three, his soul, Shechem's, his soul was strongly attracted to Dina, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. And, and of course, we all understand that, that real love would never do something like force itself upon another person. But this, this Shechem guy believes that he really loves Dina. And so he keeps trying to pursue her, which would have been obviously horrific for her. But in this culture, sexual assault didn't necessarily mean that a future relationship was out of the question. It's horrific, but there were relationships that started that way in this culture. And it's implied in the text that the assault took place in Shechem's home. So likely, uh, Dina is hanging out with some of Shechem's sisters in his house. He sees her, assaults her, and apparently he continued to hold her hostage there inside the house. Verse four, so Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace. That just means he kept quiet until they came. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, uh, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us. Uh, give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. So Shechem's father, Hamor, goes to speak with Dinah's father, Jacob. He, you'll notice he doesn't offer any type of apology because, again, this is pretty standard stuff in this pagan culture. He just says, hey... You know, my son really likes your daughter, and uh, you know he thinks they've really hit it off, so why don't you just let him marry her? Plus, you know, this marriage is going to take your relationship with all the locals to the next level, and there's going to be all kinds of business benefits for you. In fact, you know, uh, do you have any more daughters that our guys can hook up with? So if I'm Jacob, I mean, this is the part where I would have murdered somebody, but that's, that's not what happens yet, but, but you can just tell. Just in the conversation here, how, how depraved and wicked this culture is around them in the area that they're living in. Verse 11, then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, this is to Jacob and the brothers, uh, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as my wife. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father. And spoke deceitfully, because he had defiled Dina their sister. So Jacob's sons answer Hamor and Shechem, but Jacob stays silent, which is very unusual in that patriarchal culture, because the father would usually speak for the family. As we just saw, uh, who comes out to speak with the family of Jacob on behalf of Shechem? Shechem's father, Hamor. Patriarchal society pretty much everywhere in the Middle East at this time. But two of Jacob's sons are doing the talking here. We're gonna find out in a little bit that this is Simeon and Levi, who are both in their late teens, early 20s. And the sad thing is that after a decade of not walking with the Lord, out of living outside of the will of the Lord, Jacob seems to have reverted back to the wimpy, mousy, cowardly ways that marked his life before he left home uh, when he was 75, And it seems as though his own sons no longer even view him as the the leader of their family. And there's two lessons in this I want us to be aware of. The first lesson is this. We could do a whole message on this. You're saying, please don't. I won't. Okay. But the first lesson is this. The best version of you, the best version of you is the one that walks with God. The best version of you is the one that walks with God. And this is so easy to forget because we live in a culture where on social media and everything. There's a million ideas about how you should live your best life, how to be the best version of yourself. Let me make it real simple. The best version of you is the one that walks with the Lord. There's no version of you that is better to be married to there's no version of you that is better to be friends with. There's no version of you that is better to work with. There's no version of you that is a better member of society. There's no version of you that is a more effective disciple of Jesus than the version of you that is walking with the Lord. If you want to maximize your potential, if you want to be everything that you can be, it's the version of you that walks with the Lord and we see that in Jacob we saw who he became when he was walking with the Lord and we see who he begins to recede into when he stops walking with the Lord second thing I'd say for us to notice is that dads if you don't lead your family somebody else will somebody else will it's that simple and it won't be healthy might be one of your kids might be a tv screen that leads your family might be the internet that leads your family. But if you, if you don't lead, somebody else will. And it won't be good, it won't be healthy. So we're told that Simeon and Levi have a plan for revenge. And so we're being tipped off that, that whatever they're about to say next is gonna be part of this plan of revenge. Let's see what they have in store. And they said to them, oh, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition, we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, you see, what they're really saying is if you convert and become Jews, which includes circumcision, if you become Jews, verse 16, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. So sad thing here that Shechem, the rapist, is the most honorable member of his family. Again, these are not good people. But uh, he says, cool, good deal. And, And then we read in verse 20 that Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of the city and spoke with the men of the city. So again, so messed up. These depraved men are like leaders of their city. Shechem's a rapist, but he has the ability to influence the men of the city. This is not a good place to be living. And he says to the men of the city, "'These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For indeed, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives, and let us give them our daughters.'" Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people, if every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. And now we find out the wicked ulterior motives of Hamor and the locals. Verse 23, he says to the other locals, will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. So what they're saying is essentially, hey, if we can get them to to mingle here this is how the story's gonna end. We're gonna get our hands on all their stuff one way or another. And, and in my opinion, this is the first documented case of a strategy that Satan will use on God's people, the Israelites, over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. It won't succeed here, but unfortunately, it will succeed many, many times at other times. Here's what's happening. The locals look on at Jacob's family and they say, man, those guys sure have a lot of stuff. Everything they touch seems to be blessed but they don't really take on business partners from outside their family so so how are we going to get in with these guys well if we get them to intermarry with our sons and daughters then those walls will start coming down and we can start getting into business with these guys and we can figure out some ways sooner or later to get our hands on their wealth from satan's perspective he looks at jacob's family and he says these guys are being blessed by the lord how can i change that how can I mess up God's plan for their lives? I, I, I can't have people looking at them and thinking that following the Lord is a blessed thing. I, I gotta do something about this, I know. I'll get them to intermarry with the locals and, and soon the values of the culture will become their values instead of the values of the Lord being their values. And as I said, while Satan's plan won't work this time, it'll work plenty of other times. And this is what Satan does in your life and mine. He, he looks at us, he sees that we're living for the Lord, he sees that we're being blessed by the Lord, and he says, how, how can I take them down? How can I destroy that witness? I, I can't have them being full of joy and, and, and peace and telling people that they're, they're Christians. I, I gotta do something. And he tries to get us to stop living a life where God is calling the shots, where his word is setting our values and priorities, and Satan says, why don't you just look around you at the culture instead? Why don't you get your values from the culture? Why don't you pay attention to what everybody else is doing, how everybody else is living? And he tries to get us to marry our heart and our mind to the culture around us. He tries to get us to marry our hearts and minds to the culture around us. Because if he can do that, he can begin to move us from the place of blessing to the place of Burden. So write this down. Satan attempts to steal our blessings by getting us to marry our hearts and minds to the culture of this world rather than the kingdom of heaven. It's a constant struggle if you're a Christian to not be conformed to the ways of this world, the thinking of this world, but have our thinking renewed by Jesus and to operate in the mind of Christ. So there's one other thing I want to point out to you, specifically if you're a single woman. Shechem is planning on faking his conversion so that he can marry Dina. That's what he's planning on doing. I'm so glad that this sort of thing doesn't happen in our day and age today. You know, I, I'm, I'm being facetious because it, uh, it still does. People fake being believers so that they can be with believers. I had friends who were doing this when we were teenagers. When I was 13, somebody was already doing this. You know, a guy says, hey, you want to go out sometime? Oh, I'm sorry, I only date Christians. I just became a Christian. When? Just now. Oh, that's great. Let's go out. don't Don't be stupid. Let's have some real talk. Because you need to know that they're a believer because they love the Lord, not because they're trying to get you naked. You need to know that for sure. And if it just happened right after they met you, it's probably the latter and not the former. That's why it's generally good advice to see a new believer walk with the Lord for a couple of years before you marry them. That's just good advice. You need to see that they're not faking. You need to know that they're not faking. And I know that is not popular advice. And I know that there's some people who'll be offended by that, but I'm trying to be real with you and give you the same advice that I would give my own daughter. So they weren't a Christian before they met you, yeah? And then you find out they really like you and want to date you, yeah. But you told them you wouldn't date them because they're not a Christian, yeah. And so they became a Christian, yeah. Isn't the Lord good? Come on now, come on now, come on now. But this is the plan, this is the plan for Shechem. He's planning on faking his conversion so that he can marry Dina. Sure, sure, I'm as Jewish as they come. Mazel tov, let's get this done. Verse 24, and all who went out of the gate of his city heeded Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of a city. So everyone from the city, every man gets circumcised. Which I just gotta say, Shechem has to be one heck of a salesman. I mean, really, if you can talk a whole city full of adult men into doing this, but, but his pitch was like, guys, we can be with these hot Jewish women and we can find a way to get all their wealth. And all we gotta do is a little cut here, boom, done, and they go for it. Now, if you're not putting two and two together, being circumcised as a grown man would be extremely painful, especially because Things like scalpels didn't exist back then. At best, we're probably talking about something like a sharp rock. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about like a cut. We're talking about back and forth here. Okay, that's that's what we're talking about. Just to give you guys... Those important details that you come to New Hope for this evening. So you can really put yourself in this situation here. So that's what's unfolded here. All the local men get circumcised. And you can imagine there's pretty much silence in the city for the next several days. Other than a low-level moaning. Just, uh, that just goes on at all times, 24 hours a day for several days. Verse 25. Now it came to pass on the third day, when they were in pain, that... Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dina from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, and their donkeys what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth. All their little ones and their wives they took captive, and they plundered even all that was in the houses. So Simeon and Levi kill all the men, all the men, which I've just got to say, like you you want to talk about adding insult to injury, like it would be terrible if a woman told a man to get a vasectomy and then divorced him the day after he did it. This is a whole nother level of adding insult to injury. You have a whole group of grown men circumcise themselves and then you murder all of them afterwards. That's pretty extreme. So they kill all the men in the city. They take all the wives and children as servants or slaves. They plunder the whole town. Take anything of any value. They leave the place littered with corpses, a ghost town. They don't go for justice. They go for vengeance. They kill every father. They kill every brother. They kill every grown son, every husband, every grandfather, all the men. In James 1.20, I put it on your outline. It's such a good verse. It says, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Because Jacob led his family to live outside of God's will. A tragedy took place in the life of Dina. And now a tragedy's taken place among the sons of Jacob. Two of them are now mass murderers. And the idea is that once all the men were dead, the other sons of Jacob showed up and just plundered the city. They're all common thieves now. This family is just messed up and broken at this point. And it all traces back to the dad, Jacob, leading his family to live outside the will of God. And just in case you're wondering why it was only Simeon and Levi who went in and killed all the men, it's because they were the blood brothers of Dina. They all shared Leah as a mother. The others came from Rachel and the two servant wives. Verse 30, then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land. Greatest understatement in history, I think, right? Obnoxious, that's the word you're gonna use? Okay, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites and since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. Jacob says, guys, you've acted rashly and now all the people around us are gonna get together and come for us. They're They're gonna take us out. Jacob doesn't rebuke them for what they've done. He doesn't chastise them for committing genocide. He he just says, "Uh, I'm bothered by the fact you've put the family in danger, specifically me. You've put me in danger. That's Jacob's concern in all of this. He's fallen a long way from the man of God. He had been just a decade earlier. Verse 31, but they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? Which is, I think, essentially the first ever recording in history of somebody saying sorry not sorry is what they're basically saying should he treat our sister like a harlot yeah we're sorry not is basically their response weird story weird chapter husbands and fathers let me say this though lead your family in the lord's ways lead your family in the lord's ways if he calls you to move you move he calls you to make a change, you make that change. He calls you to change something in the life of your child, you, you change it. I know it's scary to step out in faith, but, but let me just remind you God is trustworthy. He's trustworthy. And it's far better to be in the place of blessings than the place of burdens. So lead your family to the place of blessings, not the place of burdens. Do the same thing that Joshua said at the end of his life. He said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord our God. That's what we're going to do. Lead your families. And if you find yourself in the place of burdens today, let me just encourage you, ask the Lord. In this coming time of worship and prayer we're going to have, ask the Lord if there's something he's asked you to do that you've just pushed to the side, that you've ignored him on. It could, could be from a long time ago. Ask the Lord, Lord, is there something you want me to do that I haven't done? Is that why I'm not hearing from you? Is that why I just seem to be in the place of burdens? What's off in my life? But listen, don't ask him to show you if you're not willing to actually make that change. If you're not willing to change, he's not gonna show you. I guarantee it. You have to predetermine, hey, Lord, if you reveal something to me, I'm gonna make that change. And he will, he will. And lastly, if there's someone you need to be reconciled with, do their part and see if they're willing to do theirs. If you've been offended, go to them and let them know. And no matter what, forgive them, forgive them. If you've done wrong to somebody, apologize to them and do whatever you can to make it right. See if they'll forgive you. Remember what James 4, 6 tells us. Just another of my favorite verses because it's so brutally truthful and helpful and powerful. God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I'll just tell you from my own life, any time in any difficult situation that I've made a conscious decision to go to a person to discuss something difficult in humility, when I've done it in humility, the Lord has always been gracious. He's always poured out his grace on that conversation in, in a way that astounded me. God really does, he gives grace to the humble. When we choose to humble ourselves, God pours grace on that situation. So with that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And, Father, just a tragic and, and difficult chapter from your word, Lord. Um, but God, we need lessons, not just about what to do right, but, but warnings about what happens when we choose to ignore you, when we choose to ignore your word. Thank you for loving us enough to not just tell us about all the good, but to also warn us about the dangers and the heartbreak and the burdens that are found outside of your will, outside of that place of relationship with you. Father, simply put, we wanna be in the place of blessing, Lord. We wanna abide in you, and more than anything, we want the blessing of being in relationship with you, the peace, the joy, the, the rest, the confidence, the assurance that comes from being where you want us to be, being in your presence, in relationship with you. So Father, I just ask that you would be gracious to us and and, and reveal to any of us who aren't obeying you in an area of our life what it is that we need to change. And Lord, before that, would you just stir a desire in every single one of us to want to obey you, to want to bless you, Lord, to wanna lay down our lives for you. Father, I pray that that every single one of us would be ministered to by your spirit in this coming time and that we would walk out of here being able to say, "I'm, I'm in the will of God. I'm in the will of God. or knowing enough to make the change that will get us there, Lord. Thank you that you only desire good for us. Your heart is never to make us miss out on anything, but it's only to bless. It's only to do good to us. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your compassion, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your instructions to us, Lord. They lead us to life, so help us to walk in your ways, God.